a marriage that survived and thrived. The Dr. Diane Saliba Hassan story. Welcome to the 313 Men, Money, and Marriage podcast, where facts, logic, and reasoning are at the forefront of every conversation. And in this episode, we are going to be talking to Dr. Diane Saliba Hassan, pertaining to her book, Angels Among Us in Iraq. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we delve deep into this issue. back to the 313 Men, Money, and Marriage podcast. And as I did say in the intro, we're going to be talking to Dr. Diane Saliba Hassan and her story in a book entitled Angels Among Us, Even in Iraq. Now, just to let you know, I've known Diane for a very long time, probably about 14 years. I haven't seen her in a minute, but I have known her for quite a long time and she has been a work colleague of mine and I consider her a friend so we're going to be discussing her book. So would everyone give it up for Dr. Hassan? Good afternoon, ma'am. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me on your program today. It's such an honor. Absolutely. You have, I've known you for a very long time. And I remember, I don't know if you remember, but you had did a presentation on this book when sort of we first met. And you had did it during a Lunch and Learn segment. At, at the work at the job and that was the first time I had ever even known anything remotely pertaining to your story so I always thought about you know she would be a good guest to come on the show so I find you know we reached out and got in touch with each other so here we are so what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about you and your your book your marriage and how everything you know all the stuff that you went through because this is one incredible story so I think the audience would be very intrigued by what you have to say can you just give us a short backstory of who you are, and where you're from. I was born in Dothan, Alabama. It's in uh, South Alabama, the Florida-Alabama line. Uh, my grandfather was a founder of Dothan, and in uh, uh, Dothan was uh, previously known as Popular Head. And in November the 10th, 1885, they changed the name to Dothan. And my grandfather, when he came to Dothan, he started, he brought into the area bananas, and his building now is called the Saliba Building. It's a historic building here in Dothan. And I grew up on a very uh, beautiful street. It was South St. Andrews. All the cousins lived on that street. We played together. It's sort of like an Andy Griffith type of uh, town. And the homes were big, beautiful, colonial-style homes. And so I led a very uh, sheltered life. I saw, I still remember all the beautiful pecan trees on South St. Andrews. It was a beautiful, Dothan was so beautiful, and I was surrounded by relatives and cousins. And I thought I would never leave Dothan, Alabama. The only time I would leave was to go off to the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, and then on to UAB, where I hoped to become a doctor. But 
God had other plans for me, and I found myself 10,000 miles away, a second-year medical student at the University of Baghdad College of Medicine. Great. Now, we're going to get into that in a second here, but how you got there. So your family has a deep-rooted history in the town of Dothan, and Dothan is not that small town that you're describing anymore. It seems like it's grown quite a bit since then. But, yeah, so your, your family is definitely integral in the, the, the development, I guess, of the, the, the town slash city because it's now turning more to a city now. Is that correct? Yes. My grandfather came. Dothan was population was only about 3,058 people. That was in about 1950, but he was here a, a long time before that and now the population is about 71,000 and when he came to Dothan he brought all from Lebanon he brought all his brothers to Dothan and my dad was born in Lebanon and he was 16 years old when he came and he always used to tell me they put him back in school they put him back in the ninth grade he said I was the oldest student in junior high school but to have my dad being born in Lebanon, he brought the traditions, the ideas, his upbringing. So I was raised, my mother was Lebanese, but she was born in El Paso, Texas. But I was still raised in that strict uh, Arabic home and he and all the traditions of the Arab, Arab world, although I was being raised here in the United States. And one thing you have to remember, the Arabs... They uh, love their children, but they always want boys. And so when they have a little girl, they love their little girl, but if she's not as like this, their son is. So that makes us try harder, strive harder, and we're more independent because we got to show, yes, we're just as good as the boys, and therefore a lot of Arabic women are very strong women. They're doctors, they're lawyers, they're pilots, because in our upbringing, we knew we had to do more. Great. I'm glad you mentioned that uh, at that part there, because that, that, you know, in modern times there, you know, people, there's a lot of stuff going on pertaining to stuff like that. But I'm glad you didn't mention that. So you ended up there. And, and at this particular time, you meet the man who ultimately becomes your husband. How what, what happened with that? Well, this that, is when you were at the University of Alabama at that time, right? Or? No, I was. I went to the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, and I was in the clinical medicine program to be a, a lab. Uh, take, well, it's a medical technologist, so it's a five-year program. So I had to do my clinicals in Birmingham. So I went to Birmingham at UAB for a medical technology school, and also I was planning on to go on to medical school. And I applied, but I didn't get in the first time. So God had another plan. If I had gotten into medical school the first time, I probably never would have met my husband because I took a biochemistry course at night thinking that would help my grade point average and what they needed the second time that I would try. And in my class was a a student from Lebanon. His name was Jamil. He became my best friend. And he knew, he used to tell me all the time, he'd say, Diane, there's an Iraqi uh, doctor coming to train in oral surgery and uh, I don't know why he told me and when I look back now it seems like it's all meant to be because why would he say that my husband hadn't even come from Iraq yet but why he said to me and I remember one day I called my mom I was in Birmingham she was in Dothan I said mama there is an Iraqi doctor coming to UAB to study training oral surgery I know he's going to want me he's single and mom said oh Diane stay away from him we don't want anybody from there so when I brought him home she said you really listened after me. <laughs> 
That's really funny. So when you first met him, he wasn't here yet. But then when he got to the, you know, got to the to the area there, what was that like when y'all first met and had contact? It was really strange because Jamil lived in the same apartment building that I did. And one night I had a biochemistry, his biochemistry book, and I took it to his apartment to give it back to him. And Hashem was there, and he was sitting there reading a magazine. And so Jamil said, oh, come in. He had other friends there. He said, uh, Dr. Hashem, they caught with, in the Arab world, we don't go by our last name. Like I would be Dr. Diana, my husband by his first name, Dr. Hashem. He said, oh, I'd like for you to meet you know, Dr. Hashem. He's finally come in. My husband's a lot older than I am. He had already finished dental school. He had been in the Army. And, uh, and so he was sitting there looking at a magazine. He just looked up and said, hello. And that's it. And I thought, oh, he's not very friendly. So I just forgot all about it. That, you know, well, that, that was that. But one day I was going to class and I had my friend Linda with me. We were walking and we at the light, we were waiting for the light to cross and Hashem comes up. He was going to the hospital, had his white coat on, his stethoscope in University of Alabama uh, emblem and looked very distinguished. And so Linda said, and he goes, hello, and keeps going. And Linda said, who is that? Do you know him? I said, oh, that's Dr. Hassan, you know. And she said, oh, he's really nice looking. Well, that was the turning point. <laughs> oh, so that got, it, that got <laughs> that his attention. That got my attention. Okay, okay. So then at that point, did y'all go on to start dating? or? No, uh, I would see him at um, the in the dining hall at the hospital. And then uh, he'd probably, maybe I kind of arranged to be at lunchtime at the same time. And we became friends talking and like this. And uh, so the other... I'm Arabic. I look Arabic. So the other, some of the nurses, you know, kind of noticed him too. And they thought he was my brother. And so they would ask me for it. They said, oh, he's nice looking. I'd like to have his phone number. So I would give them Jamil's phone number. And so one day, Jamil said to me, I don't know. I'm getting all these phone calls. And I just laughed. I said, well, enjoy. He's, it wasn't really, we didn't really date. Because in the Arab world, I know in the Arab world, they don't date. And I was raised Arabic. I never dated in high school. And in college, I had uh, I was in pre-med, and there were about 350 of us in my chemistry classes. And I was very close friends with three of the guys in my class. So they didn't let me date either. We hung out. We studied together. So I was focused on school and in classes, and I worked in research. But uh Hashem would ask me to go to the oral surgery uh, parties and stuff like that. It's sort of like casual dating. And he had four years uh, residency here, and his plan was always to go back to Baghdad. And I knew I wasn't going to go back to Baghdad. And it's kind of funny. They say the best uh, husband you could have is to be your friend first. And that's what happened. We were friends, and I saw him all the time. I went to the oral surgery parties and stuff. And then I felt comfortable with him because he was like me. We had the same nationality. I knew that if I introduced him to my dad, who's from Lebanon, he 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 would fit in. He wouldn't. I wouldn't have to explain our Arabic ways. So he was really like family the whole time. So. Eventually, after four years, when he's getting ready to go home, it seemed like that was, you know, uh, I was going to go back. I just, you know, it, he wanted me to marry him. And 
it was a problem because, you know, I was American and like this, and we had to do a lot of paperwork, and my dad was against it, not that Hashem was a bad person, but the bad, he didn't want me going back to Baghdad. And here I was going to a country I knew nothing about. Only Alibaba and the 40 Thieves is the only thing I knew. But I said to myself, I couldn't ask him to stay here because one day he may resent me. So I should be the one to make the sacrifice and go back with him. And that's what I did. I, he went back first, and then I went back. I stayed here in the States, and I went back in 1976, July of 1976. Okay, so you, you ultimately ended up, he asked you to marry him after a few years. Four basically. years. Four years. Yes. And he's going back to Baghdad, Iraq. But we married here before you, he left. Right, you married here. And then you, in the Catholic Church, and he is Muslim. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, that's even more of a, a, a spin on the story. That's, that's, that's really good there. So this, you say, it's, when did you arrive in Baghdad? Did he go first, and then you came after he did? And what year, what time period are we talking about approximately? He finished, and I believe he left in May. He finished and went right back because his, he was sent here by his government. So they had a specific time that they had to return back to the country after they finished. I had paperwork I had to complete because I'm Lebanese-American and I could, you know, ultimately go in as Lebanese to the country, and that was very important, as you will find out in my story why. My papers uh, finished in uh, July, and a very close friend of ours from Iraq happened to be returning to Iraq to visit his family, and he said, Diane, I'll take you uh with me, we'll go back with me, and I'll take you back into Iraq. And my husband had no idea. We had no way to connect with him that I was coming. And on faith, I just, you know, here I am going 10,000 miles away with a friend to a country, to my husband, had, and it's 18-hour flight to Iraq. And my husband had no, it wasn't until the night before I arrived that he knew I was coming. And he wasn't sure all my paperwork was finished. He wasn't sure if I was able to come into the country. And I, so, but that's God's will because everything worked out. That's great. I, I know that flight because I've flown from Philadelphia, you know, and made a couple of stops, but it ultimately ended up in Saudi Arabia when I was in the military. And that was about a 16 or so hour flight. So I know how long it takes to get there. And so another question I just want to ask you, how did you know? I mean, because this is, this is a step out on faith here, so you know, just, just describing the way you're describing it. But how did you know he was the one? I always ask married couples when they come on the podcast, how, what was it? How did you know, yes, this is the one? Well, this goes back to when the day I was born, my dad, my Lebanese father, who said to me, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to marry a doctor, and you'll have a son. I heard that every single, and I told him, you know, I said to him, I said, you know, Dad, doctors are not God. He said, I know, but they're the next best thing. That was his, he put it, I guess you say I was brainwashed. So when I met my husband, and I, like I said, the main thing about him was that I felt comfortable with him. I felt like he was family because he was raised in the same way I was raised. And here he was. I looked at him and said, wow, that's everything my, everything my dad had put into my mind. He's a doctor. He's, and I thought being an Arab would be a plus. And, and I just the only thing that I really realized that that was the one was because I didn't have to pretend with him. I didn't have to 
uh, it, it just there, just like your best friend yeah, right there. Flowed. And yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. It kind of flowed. Yeah. That's, that's a really good, interesting point. Now you get to Baghdad. You're, you're there living. Now y'all living somewhere in the city limits. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming a, a Baghdad at this time. Well, what or, happened was this is come, uh, you know, I always say the day I've never flown before a 747. I've never been out of uh, America. So for me, when Hattie, we got to New York and we got on the 747, the day I walked onto that plane, I was one person and I was never the person the same. But I kept saying, you know, I guess a little redneck in me. I said, oh, Hattie, look at this plane. It's like a hotel. You think it's going to take off? I mean, I was just, without knowing anything, and, you know, he's flown all the time, you know, all over the world, and, you know, the Arabs and uh, foreigners, they just travel. It's not a big deal for them. He says, Diane, can you just be a little quiet for a little bit? It was just a big adventure for me. So we flew to Germany changed planes and that's when we were going to fly from Germany into Baghdad which was not you know our main flight was from New York into Germany that was the longest flight I never seen and I said Hattie look they have machine guns do you think they're I mean it was just like a someone that had never been anywhere in the world and just seeing the world all at once so when I got to Baghdad I had a feeling something wasn't quite right it was hot and that was at 12 o'clock at night but all of a sudden, when I got to the airport, I was rushed right through. Everything just right on through. And I thought, hmm, something. Is. And all these people were there. I didn't know that my husband was so important in the government at that time and was such an important person in Iraq. But I started finding out. And I remember I kept telling him that first night. He said, Hashem, it is just so hot here. What's it like in the daytime? He said, well, it was 12 o'clock at night, and some very close friends had invited us for dinner right when I came from the airport to their home. He said, we're going to some friend's home for dinner. When he drove up, I looked at the house. I said, I thought we were going to their home, not the hotel. He said, Diane, this is their home. In Iraq, the homes, you know, they don't have, they go up. With they're not out up, and so you have to know that the people that I was around were the elite of Iraq, and thirty, forty thousand square feet homes was nothing, you know. But for somebody from South Alabama and going in, you know, he said, "Can you be a little less redneck, yes. please?" Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because your your husband and you found out once you got there was a very important figure within the Iraqi government. Now, what was that what was that all about? What exactly did he do or what was his role? Uh, Hashem was yes, he was very well known in Iraq, very well respected. When I got to Iraq, he was dean of the dental school. And I, you know, had decided that he didn't want me to go to dental school because he didn't want me in the same, you know, place where he was. So the medical school and the dental school was connected. So when I started medical school, he they had already moved him to Munston Saria to be president of the university. And he was never home because he was always in meetings and everywhere I heard, oh, Dr. Hashem, Dr. Hashem, everybody in Iraq knew my husband. He was a very, I guess, very powerful, very, you know, well-respected man. I had a driver, had a bodyguard, and all of this was just like, I never, he never mentioned any of that to me. I never knew that that was what 
uh, type of position he had in Iraq. Got it. Now, now, approximately what time period is this? That was in, I went to Iraq in 1976 when Ahmed Hassan Becker was president and gotcha. Saddam was vice president. And that's, you know, and he was, the Ba'ath Party was the ruling party at that time. And I guess I was the only one in Iraq that wasn't Ba'athist, but, you know, they were uh, doing a lot of good things in Iraq, and uh, they that was the ruling government at that time. Correct. And and at that time, now, was, your husband was a member? Of the, oh, of, of definitely the, Ba'ath Party, yeah, uh, a high, high member of the Ba'ath Party. Right, so he was a high-ranking member in the yes. Ba'ath Party on top of being university Yes. Uh, president or you know leader of the so yeah so I could see that he was a very important figure so it was somewhat of a I guess culture shock for you in the sense of you're seeing all of this stuff and how you're hanging around with you know sort of the best of or the best of the brightest people in okay. the, the area. Of course, it was intimidating because my clothes were from here in the States. Now, there are a lot of difference from Alabama, you know, buying the stores and somebody getting, they got all their clothes from Paris and, you know, and name brand things and everybody wearing the gold and because, you know, they had the gold markets there. Yes, yes, and, the gold markets. And, I remember those. Yeah. And for them to, and most of all of them have traveled, I mean, for them traveling all over the world. And yes, it was very intimidating. Uh, but my husband, he just made he made everything so easy for me and tried to protect me from my surroundings is what he did and not to make me aware of a lot of things that were a little more dangerous than I had anticipated and you had known at that time yes. so then at that point i guess uh uh Saddam Hussein was vice president. Vice president, but uh, then he becomes president, what, in like 79, 80? Yeah, I, it was 79, I would say. I believe I was there a year. I was going into my fourth year of medical school, and uh, my husband came home one night, and he was so excited. He said, Ahmed Hassan Becker is going to give up the presidency, and Saddam was going to be president. And everybody, you know, was so excited about what was happening. And I saw it on TV. Of course, my husband was at the meeting. I didn't ever go to any of the uh, functions of the high power. You know, uh, if whenever any dignitaries came to Iraq, the wives would go. But my husband would always say that I would, which I was, I was in class or I was studying. And so he kind of kept me away from all of that. So, yes, I was a fourth-year medical student when Saddam came to power. Okay. So, now, just to put it in perspective, historically speaking, 7980 in Iran is when the Shah was overthrown and Saddam Hussein came into power roughly mm -hmm. around the same time in yeah. Iraq. Yes. Then, what may be less than a year later, there's yes. the Iran-Iraq war. Yes. I remember the night that the Shah left, uh, Iraq, um, Baghdad was on, you know, alert. I was there by myself at the, uh, we lived on the Tigris River. We had wow. a, a beautiful a, a apartment there on the Tigris River. And I was sitting out on the balcony because electricity, electricity, no TV, nothing. And I was sitting there by myself and that, and we knew that the Shah was leaving Iran and Khomeini was coming into Iran. And I, uh, you know, and I still remember that night is the only time I ever remember Baghdad being quiet, you know, because Baghdad is a very big city. And I was living right there on the Tigris and the main city you would see 
the horse-drawn buggies and the taxi cab drivers, and life went on. I mean, it didn't stop. They are uh, all through the night and all. And so that night stayed in my mind, and it was just, you know, so historical for me because I saw it by myself, you know. Right, wow. So th- that, that period of time happens. Now you, you finish with school, and you're married, and then during that whole period of time, I guess, when uh, the Iran-Iraq war was occurring, did your life change at any at all, or were you still living the same, you know, type of life during that period of time? That was when I took a dr- drastic change in my life. I was a fifth-year medical student, and that's when we do all our clinics and always in the hospital. And the Iran war was going on. And I remember we had to move from the Tigris when I was here in the States when Hashem had to move from that apartment because they had given it to the people in the area. And he got a house in what we called Hey Jamaha, and it's about an hour's ride on the bus. And when the uh, war started, the Iran war started, yeah, you'd have air raid uh, sirens going off. You'd have blackouts. I used to spend my time and the fifth year was the hardest time studying by what we call a fanus, it's a lantern. I had my son with me. He was born in Baghdad, but I took him back to, he stayed in America with my parents till he was three years old. And then I took him back to Iraq when uh, he was three years old. And so he was there when uh, the Iran-Iraq war was going. And I know a lot of times I'd be, and my mother-in-law lived with us. She took care of him. And I'd be at the hospital, and the air raid sirens would go off. You'd see the missiles, and I'd think, am I going to see my son again? Because I wasn't with him. A missile could go on the home or anything like that. And then uh, one Christmas day, uh, we Hashem had, took us to dinner. We always he celebrated Christmas with us and he's told me, Diane, I have a meeting tonight. Wake me. But he was so tired. I've never done this before. I don't know why I did it. Uh I didn't wake him. And I told his mother, I said, you know, he's tired. She said, let him sleep. Well it turned out Saddam had called a meeting and he was asking for volunteers to go to the front. And a lot of the high powered leaders didn't he said you don't have to sign if you don't feel like you can do it and if you know my husband wasn't there he didn't sign and so that was taken like boycott in the meeting so the next thing I knew the students all knew I didn't know my husband didn't let me know the driver still came for me but uh Saddam said well these are traitors they didn't volunteer and and was going to have them all executed. And his brother said, no, let's send them to the front and let the army do it. So we were put under house arrest for seven years. My husband was out of the party. He had to go to the front. So I finished medical school uh, with my mother-in-law, my three-year-old son, and under house arrest. And I'll remember my sixth year, we do uh, final oral exams. I was going that morning. I woke up that morning. My son, it was we had an air raid going on, and my son had a high fever. I put him on the floor, and here I had to do uh, oral exams the next day. And I was putting, you know, cold compresses on him, trying to get the fever down. Five o'clock in the morning, the fever broke. I put him in the bed. My mother-in-law was there with him. I was going out the door when the phone rang, and they told me that my husband had been killed in the front and that a group of people were going to go to Amara and bring his body back. And I remember going, I hung up the phone. I went 
to my Bible, and I always ask God a question, and then I open up my Bible, and the first thing that I read, that's my answer. So I said, God, I'm 10,000 miles away. I have a young son, and now they're telling me the only reason that I'm in Iraq, my husband is dead. And I opened the Bible, and the first thing, two words I read was, he lives. I closed the Bible, and I was going, I said, I'm going to go do my board, uh, my oral exam. And as I was going out the door, the phone rang again. It was my husband calling me, and I couldn't. It was static and, and far away. And he said, Diane, I know what they're saying. It wasn't me. It was the previous president of Munstan Surya. I'm alive. So I went on to do my uh, oral exams. I was there from 8 o'clock in the morning to 5 in the afternoon, taking oral exams, got back on the bus, and came home. And when I walked on that graduation day, my little three-year-old son was waving at Mom and saying, good job done, Mom. Great. Now, that's a very interesting story. You're in Iraq, and you have all this stuff going on. What causes you and your husband to essentially leave, leave Iraq? After seven years... I could travel. I came home, and I visited my family, and my husband was in, uh, they let him retire from the bath party, and my husband opened up his practice, and I came to visit my mom, and I think the after that it was in 1989 that I came. I took my son home uh, from Doth, and three years old, I brought him back 13 years old. So I was here when Saddam went into Kuwait. Uh, we were at my parents' home, me and my son were in the pool, and we heard Saddam had gone into Kuwait. And the coalition started forming, and so my dad kept saying, oh, I'm so glad y'all are safe in here. But I kept telling my dad, we're family, and if my husband's there, we have to all be together. So I, he, against his wishes and all, I took my son, and we went back to Iraq when the... Uh, Desert Storm was forming. And Saddam sent, uh, air, because planes quit flying into Baghdad, uh-huh. and he sent, I've never flown Iraqi Airways, I always flew Jordanian Airlines, and he sent the Iraqi Airways into Jordan to pick up all the Iraqis that were outside that wanted to come home. So my son and I were flew on the last plane that flew into Baghdad. And I did return, and I did go through the um Iraq war with there. Right. So during so this is during the time of Desert Storm. Desert Storm, uh-huh. You you're you're actually back in Iraq. I went back knowing my daddy tried to talk to me, he said the coalition is forming, the whole world is and I took my son, and we went. Even the Iraqis go, wow. Yeah, I was going to say, because wow. most people try to flee war zones, and I went you back. actually went into the war zone. I went back. That's, that's amazing. I, yeah. And that's why I say I titled this uh, A Marriage That Survives and Thrives, because I, I don't know too many people would ever do anything like that. So at that point, when you do that, and the war is going on, and eventually the war ends, you're still yeah, you're still Iraq. staying in Iraq. What happened was I was at a wedding one night. My son was about 14 years old, and he was with his dad. They had gone to the club, and on the way home, they stopped the car. They stopped my husband's car, and they asked for ID for my son. Well, he didn't. He's 14 years old. He didn't have it. Well, they said, you gonna, we'll take him, and then you can come to the police station and after you get the papers, get it. My husband said, there's no way that's happening. So after he got 
through all of that, and he realized the boys got the boys got to get out of Iraq. So I didn't know we were staying. When we came in 1993, my husband bought. I said, "Are you going to leave us there?" I, I really liked it. I liked my life. I liked my friends and what I, you know, and all. But because he kept the danger away from me. So when we came to visit in 1993, he bought the round-trip tickets. He showed me all of that. So one night he said, I've got to talk to you and Muhammad. He took us on 231, riding and talking, and that's when he told us, you are going to stay, do your boards here, and I'm going to go back and give power of attorney, and I'll come back, you know. And I thought, this isn't good, you know. <laughs> it's so... And that's what he did. He went back. He left us here in 1993. And I was fortunate to have to live with my parents. But the saying goes, you can never go home again. It's true. You can't. It's never like when you were there before. My parents were older. And I had to face my dad like, I told you. You know, I kept getting that from him. And here I was, a doctor. But I couldn't work. I didn't have a license here. I had to do my boards here. And so, and I had a 13-year-old son and no money. So that, that was a really hard part of my life. But everything I went through and the, angel, the times that I could have been killed and the angels that God sent to save me, I realized he's going to send some more angels to save me, in which he did. Okay. Can you now, can you elaborate on that? Because now at this point... Your husband goes back to Iraq. Mm -hmm. You're here in the States with your son. And then what, what happened? I went, I started doing the studying for the boards. I went to Kaplan in Tallahassee. And I would drive from Dothan to Tallahassee to study at Kaplan before I got an apartment there, studio apartment, to stay there so I could study. Because I had been out of school. I graduated in 82. This is 93. And I'm taking American boards. I was practice, I was a practicing physician. So I, uh, you know, I, my son was in school here, and he was going to Dothan High School. But the thing is, when my I was in Tallahassee, and uh, happened, my aunt told me, we've never done this before. She said, well, so you don't feel so bad. Every Sunday, make sure either you call Hashem or he calls you. You'll know you have that contact. Well, the first Sunday I called him, there's no answer. No, he, he was. I'm sorry, he was. He answered, everything was okay. The second Sunday I called, nothing. The third Sunday I called, nothing. So I thought, something's wrong. He was supposed to be there or call us. So one night I was studying in Tallahassee, and the phone rang, and my son crying. He said, Mom, Dad's been shot. And so that's what it was. He was in the hospital the whole time, and we didn't know. And, and the reason my son found out was a doctor in South Florida thought we knew, and he called to ask how Hashem was doing. So I finally got Hashem on the phone. Of course, he couldn't say anything because, you know, everything, it seems the third, the about the after I had talked to him, the second uh, week he had gone to the club, taken some friends, before I left Iraq, Baghdad, I don't know what made me say this to him. I said, Hashem, when you go to the club, don't ever go home on the back bridge. I don't know why I said that. I don't know where it came from. 
Well, that night he came home from the club and he came home on the back bridge and they were waiting for him and they riddled the car with machine gun fire and it hit his parietal lobe. He said he was just driving and all of a sudden his whole left side, he couldn't feel it and he went into the curb. And like I say, there are good people all over the world and all the neighbors, they knew what was probably happened and they came out to help him they took him to the hospital and uh, there his cousin was head of the police for Baghdad he came and got him he had to leave that hospital and we had a friend that had a private hospital and he closed that whole section of his hospital and they uh, and his other friend was a neurosurgeon and they operated on him because a fragment of the bullet had gone into his parietal lobe and they kept him in that private hospital with guards and say so people will come to help, although they'll be in danger for helping you but they still do and so he was paralyzed on his left side for six months and finally he realized he needed to leave and come back and another time you know when he was in power and all this he always sent people to look at his do his passport and his paperwork this time he went and there was someone there that uh he went to elementary school with and he said dr hassan he said, I uh, see that your name, see the, uh, they had taken his name off the black, the United Nations had taken his name off the blacklist so he could travel. He said, your name is going back on the back blacklist tomorrow. You have to leave Iraq tonight. Don't tell anybody, but he said, I have a cousin on the final border. I'll call them and they'll get you through. The, in Iraq, when you're traveling, see, there are no planes flying in and out of Baghdad at this time. You had to go by a car and it's about uh, eight or ten hours to get to the border, but there's two borders. You get to one border inside of Iraq, they go through your whole car, see whatever you got. They take doors off, everything checking. You're there all night. Then you uh, go, you roll just a little bit, and they can still stop you. After that side has checked your car, everything, they can still stop you or they can let you go on through. So his cousin was on that second part. And so when Hashem got there, he said, you go on through. So we had uh, the Congressman Terry Everett here helping us, and they told him as soon as he got into Jordan, go to the American embassy. So he did. And when he got there, they said, are you Dr. Hassan? He said, we've been waiting for you. A very powerful man is on helping you. Here is your green card. Welcome to freedom. Got you. So now that, now that's a really interesting, wow. That, that's, that's pretty intense. Did when, who, who was it that was, I guess, doing the assassination attempt or I don't think it was Saddam. Mm -hmm. I think it was a relative, and I think it was sort of like, we're going to show you, you went, you know, to America. My husband doesn't really talk about it, but I feel like that's why did why did you go, and this is, we're going to show the others, you know, and so. That, okay, but, so they were sort of using him as like an example. example. And the bullets hit the gas tank. And wow. didn't blow up. That's what I'm saying. You know, the angels that will protect you when it's your time. It's your time. If not, absolutely, you're not absolutely. So you just got into how difficult it was because that was going to be my next question. How difficult it was to leave. You're on a house arrest. That got lifted. He was able to leave the country before he got put back on the list and was actually able to make it into Jordan and get to the American embassy and get from Jordan back to the states. And y'all ended up living. 
back here uh, in with the Dothan parents, era? With my parents. And the funny the thing was, uh, before I started, you know, trying for my boards, I tried to get a job. And can you imagine? Here I am, a doctor, had my practice, had, you know, I don't mean to, this to sound like I'm bragging, but I had so much. You go to your, my home was like, 10, 20,000 square feet. Have, uh, nobody had anything but a Mercedes and all of that in the car, all, all the money in the world. And then I had a little car that here that I, you know, I didn't know what the noise was when I was driving it. It's because it wasn't sealed, you know, and I've never been in a car like that because my dad bought me a Cougar XR7 when I graduated. And then I have this. And I remember I was driving to Tallahassee just crying, feeling sorry for myself when he left us and went back because my whole life, nobody wants to go back. I wouldn't wish it on anybody to go back and start over again at that time of our life. And then the song by the group Alabama came on, Angels Among Us. And I said, that's going to be the name of my next book. And the funny thing about it was the uh, group Alabama is the only American group that Saddam let play their music in Iraq. And I had their tapes, and I'd be driving in my Mercedes to the hospital playing the songs by the group, you know, Alabama. And so when I was trying to find a job before I went to Tallahassee, I went to uh, an agency where find your job, and he'll say, well, uh, do you know the computer? No. Do you know how to schedule patients? No. Do you know anything about medical insurance? No. And he looked at me, and he said, what, do you, what can you do? I said, I can save lives, but I just don't have the paper to let me do it. It was and then, my, this is another thing, I went to different places, nobody, but then I had one resume left in my hand, and my mom was with me. And we went by the renal hypertension clinic, and mom said, leave it there, leave your paper. I said, Mama, no, he's a specialist, he's never going to hire me. And she said, why take the paper home? And he did. Dr. Joshi called me. He gave me a job. He taught me everything I needed to know. And then, uh, you know, another miracle happened to where I got on the bureau. I uh, was, it was Christmas Eve. And I was at midnight mass, and I was feeling so sorry for myself. And I had $20 left. I don't know why that $20, I have a $20 frame now, was so important to me. And they was they were coming up uh, with the, giving the basket, you know, to put your uh, offerings in. Now they come all, all of a sudden before. I don't know why. It was like a miracle. It was in slow motion. It took so long for him to come up with that basket. And I was holding on to that $20. And I said, he did, Father doesn't need my $20. Look, look how much money they're putting in. I was just holding on to it. Then I looked over to the right of me, and I kept hearing the nurses kept telling me when I was working in a renal hypertension clinic, they say, Doc, quit worrying. Get in God's boat and ride. Just quit worrying. Just get in his boat. So I looked over at the manger with the baby Jesus, and I saw the kings bringing their goat, and I remember the poor lady that came and gave God all she had, and that was the most important gift to him. So I said, okay, God, I'm riding in your boat. And I gave him my last $20. And I went out, and my dad was kind of tough. He could afford to have given me, but he was showing. Do you know when I walked out of the church, he didn't put a Christmas tree up, 
there was a beautiful Christmas tree sitting by the garbage can. And I said, well, nobody wants this one. And I took it home. That I've had so many trees after that that filled the house. But that was the most beautiful Christmas tree I ever had. And when that money went, that $20, it was like I was telling God, I don't need this money. I'm letting you know I need I have faith in you. And they, you know, when that money went into that basket, and I remembered I had, when I look back, I had to laugh. You know, Jesus was born in the Arab world, and he probably learned how to drive over there because that boat was not smooth sailing. It went up a hill and down a hill. And But every Sunday I kept buying a ticket in his boat. But as soon as that $20 went in that night, the next week I got a phone call. I was sitting in Dr. Josie's office, and Lily called me, and I had already interviewed at the Bureau three times. She said, uh, is this Diane? I said, yeah. She said, baby, won't you come back and interview again? I said, Lily, I'm not doing it again. I said, I've been there three times. I've urinated in that cup. I'm not doing it again. She said, no, baby, we're taking you this time. And I got the best. What was holding them up was to do the background check on Minnie Rock. And that warden said, we don't need to do it. Let's get her. And so that was, she saved my life that night and had the best job ever. So that was another, you know, miracle that God's going, you get in his boat and ride, he's going to take you where you need to go. And right now we're smooth sailing, so. That's it. You, you survived and you thrived. And uh, we actually met through the, 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 Bureau, the Bureau of Prisons, you know, at the same uh, facility. And so that's very interesting. Your husband initially comes here, and he becomes a dentist, an oral surgeon here? He, uh, this is another thing he had to do. There was just miracles all the way. When he came, yeah, he had the year he left, when we left to go back to Iraq, they said, Dr. Hassan, stay 18 more months. We'll give you your American license. Oh, no, he had to get back. He said, I'll never practice medicine here. What happened was the year that we came, uh, he had to do that special track, go back to dental school for three years. And oh. so I wrote, uh, you know, he had to take the boards, and he used all of my notes and all. He did very good on his boards. And then I remember calling. The, they called me from the dental school, and they said, well, we don't think we're going to take him because, you know, he's old and like this, older, and and we have other younger. And I said, well, I, told, I can't remember the doctor that called me. I said, well, if you want to make my day, you just call me again tomorrow because I'm at the lowest point I can be because he, ha he couldn't practice. if he. But the very next day after that, someone called and said, no, we're taking him. So here he's going to go back to dental school where he went as an oral surgeon resident. And something came in my mind. I said, he's never had a checkup. And I had a friend that's a cardiologist, and I wanted him to have a checkup on his heart. Come to find out that he, they found out he had blockage and he had to have bypass surgery. And Dr. Plans at the time, he went to school with me and he told me, he said, Diane, I've never operated this other angels that came. He said, I've never operated on a Saturday, but I'll do it for you so that he won't have to spend so, he won't miss so much time in dental school and he can go on to school. And he did, he had a quadruple bypass surgery. Wow, wow. And so that, that's, that's very interesting. And, and just to put, I guess, the, the finishing touches on it as we get ready to wrap up, your son actually became a dentist. I said, you know, that's, uh, when he was a little boy, he was only three years old, they used to ask him, they say, Muhammad, 
do you want to be a doctor like your mother or a dentist it's like your father? He, he looks at him and goes, well, the way, three years old, the way I look at it, my mother's a doctor, so it must not be too much to it. I want to be a dentist like my dad. That's good. <laughs> well, Diane, this is one incredible story. And if you get a chance, you need to check out this book. It is entitled Angels Among Us, Even in Iraq, Dr. Diane Saliba Hassan. Hassan. I got to make sure I say that correct. Hassan. And it is a, a great read. It, is, 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 it, it flows. It has that nice, uh, it's very easy to read. And this is one incredible story that like most people would think during that period of time, during the Iran-Iraq War and during the, the Gulf War, that you were actually living in the country during that period of time is amazing and that your husband was able to get out and you were able to get out pretty much unscathed is one incredible story. So we want to just say to you, thank you for coming on and sharing your story on the 313 Men, Money, and Marriage podcast. I think this is very, very, a very beautiful story and a very great, a great ending. And like you said, the angels were on your side. So thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for having me and for allowing me to share. It is a beautiful story. And I hope if I could just touch one person, don't give up. God's going to send you those angels. You can't go through anything worse than I've been through. Yeah. And and you're you're a living testimony of that. So everyone, thank you, uh, Diane, for coming on. Well, like I said, we're about to wrap up and have uh, we talk about on the podcast there. If you want to get on the email list and subscribe, there's always a link in the show notes that goes to the website. And all you have to do is leave your name and your email address and you will be put on the email list, which will give you access to bonus content that comes up here in 2024. And you will have a firsthand knowledge of what the next episode is going to be about prior to its release. In addition, we have an Instagram page, the 313 Men, Money, Marriage. You can go in there and see pictures of previous guests and some of the other accolades and different things that I've done on the Instagram page as well. So with that being said, we are about to wrap up, as we did say earlier. I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year period of time here. And until we meet in, we are out.